St. James. It's good to see all you guys here. Uh, welcome to the people who are watching on the live stream. A couple things I want to point out here, and then um, uh, we'll get into worship. Uh, first is, uh, schedule-wise, uh, next Sunday for the um, Bible study hour, uh, Mike Ramsey, who is a friend of Jessica's, uh, uh, Jessica Garkey's, has, uh, he's going to come here, and he's going to talk about his ministry in St. Louis. He runs a ministry called Revival School, and Revival School is focused on uh, uh, pro providing an outlet in the arts, training in the arts, whether it's the visual arts or uh, music arts. They have a music studio. Uh, textile arts, they do fashion shows. For refugees, primarily in the underserved in St. Louis, primarily refugees in St. Louis. Also training on how to just navigate life in the United States. That ministry meets in, for, this, for, for some of you this will be important and some of you won't be interested at all, meets in the old seminary building, not the place where Concordia Seminary is now, but the building that it was in before, you know, prior to the 1920s. Uh, he's going to be here next week to present that ministry to us. In addition, he is bringing with him uh, Cyril Loom, who is uh, an LCMS pastor. Uh, Cyril and he are praying about starting a church, a Lutheran church in St. Louis, geared towards Congolese refugees. So they're going to be here during the Bible study hour next time. So please be here at 9.15 and join us for that. And if you have any questions about that ministry at all, the person in the room who knows most about that would be Jessica. And so feel free to uh, get a hold of her after the service and ask her any questions you might have. Tonight is 6.30, new members class. We're talking about the sacraments. Anybody who wants to come is welcome. Last week we talked about baptism a bit. We did not get into infant baptism. We're going to talk about that tonight. If anybody has questions about that or you just want a refresher on what the Bible says about infant baptism, 
Uh, please show up tonight for that at 6.30. All right, everything else is on the schedule for today and this week. Uh, stand with me if you would, and let me open us in prayer, and then we'll get uh, straight into the worship. Let's pray. Father, we know in our heads, for those of us who are Christians, we know that you own us and that you own everything. But you, you also know, Father, that we don't live this out and that uh, my desperation for uh, money or property or career success is really stifling me in my walk with you. Father, will you forgive me? Will you wash me clean from that? Will you teach me that you own everything and that you've given me and your son Jesus Christ everything? Would you give me a heart of generosity? Would you give St. James a heart of generosity towards those who could be served by your gospel through us? Will you do this for your own glory and for our good? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's pray and ask God to, confess, to, to forgive our sins. I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I've sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore, I pray God Almighty to have mercy on me. Forgive me all my sins and bring me to everlasting life. Amen. The Almighty. I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore, I pray God Almighty to have mercy on me, forgive me all my sins, and bring me to everlasting life. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord grant you pardon, forgiveness, and remission of all your sins. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn.
for this morning is from Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is from Ecclesiastes 5. Uh, You'll see when we get to the sermon text why we're reading Ecclesiastes 5 here. But I'm going to point out a couple of things in here to you. There's two different ways of thinking about uh, money and work. And verses verses 10 through 17 is one way. It's not the way you want to think about money and work. Verses 18 through 20 is the way. And when we get through here, I'll point out the difference too. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he, who loveth, nor he who loves wealth will be satisfied with his income. This is, one of the, this is the great irony of idolatry, is that the thing that you love will never make you happy. The thing that you invest your hopes and your dreams in can never pay out. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Like what good is your, what, what good is your property and your money except just to look at? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer as opposed to somebody who's got money, as opposed to capital. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? The frustration of living for money. That's that's just a beautiful poetic line to capture the frustration of living for money. It's like working for the wind. You work hard for it, but you can't ever hold on to it. It slips away and it's gone. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the good way to think about money. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. You catch the difference? Now, I know the word toil throws us off because it's got this feeling of like backbreaking labor. But what he's saying here is, don't invest in money. Invest in your vocation. Invest in your work. Like, don't get your pleasure from the money that you get from your work. Get your pleasure and your satisfaction from what God has called you to do, the vocation that He's given us. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil. This is the gift of God. There's nothing wrong with being rich, but if you make the money your goal and not the vocation that God has given you, you're not going to be happy. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading from Hebrews 4 is just picking up from where we were last time, last Sunday. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, 
Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, for the gospel came to us just as to them. The them is the wilderness Israelites who rebelled against God and died in the wilderness. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhat spoken, somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the gospel failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
the gospel reading. Holy Gospel according to St. Mark chapter 10. And Jesus looked around. This is right after, so this is the, this is, this is the same, this is just the second part of the story that we began last week where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, how do I get the life of the age to come? And Jesus says, obey the commandments. And he says, I do all that. And Jesus says, you're lacking one thing. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And then he goes away sorrowful because he had a lot of wealth. This is right after that. Jesus looks around and says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who could be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I told Angela on Wednesday or Thursday, I, I, I mentioned to her, I was, so I was working on this sermon, and I told her, like, I, I'm having a hard time, like, knowing where to go with this. Like, I, I just feel like, I, you know, I just, it's, not, I'm doing, it's not clicking with me. It's not making sense to me. I, I realized shortly after talking to her that the reason why I was having a hard time studying this text is because I was doing the things that, that I, here's what I usually do when I study a text. Like, I, I'm studying to teach you guys and there'll be stuff in there that's poking at me and my idols. And sometimes I can sort of like bleep over those and move on to stuff that's more comfortable for me to talk about. But wherever I turned in this text today, like I was getting punched. Like my desire for financial security and my love of money and material possessions. Like I was getting hit real hard and I, I was... Like looking around, okay, so that, 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 that line won't work. What I can talk about this line. Well, this line won't work either. And there was really nowhere to go here in the text that wasn't going to challenge me. And so I, I, just feel, I, just, I just felt sort of crushed this week studying this, that I've not lived up to the standard that God has set here. I mean, one of the, one of the ways that, that we do that is to try to misinterpret the camel and the eye of the needle thing. More on that in just a few minutes. But like, join with me, please. Pray for me, and I'll pray for you. Pray for me that God would help me to be a kingdom person and help me to value kingdom economy over this world's economy. That's where I want to be. I mean, this is a, so again, I told you this last week, we're talking about money uh, because that's what Jesus is talking about. Um, I, I frequently talk about how you know, money and possessions are an American dream. It's, like a, it's a contemporary idol. But th that's probably overplaying the hand. It definitely is. We all like like owning things and owning the bigger and the better and the faster and the sharper. That's something that Americans are all about, right? But it's actually a universal problem. It's not like this hasn't been a problem throughout the world. Jesus talks about money a ton. He talks about money a ton. 
In the ancient world, it was considered to be a problem as well. Here's a quote from uh, Juvenal, the, um, the great Roman satirist. He said this, I-, I love this quote, majestic mighty wealth is the holiest of our gods. He's talking about Roman, Roman culture. And so what he's saying, he's not saying that like, there's a lot of greedy people around here. He's saying that money is our God. Money is the thing that we worship, we in the Roman Empire. And it's true here too. Money is maybe the biggest idol that Americans have, just like they did in Jesus' day. What do I mean by money being an idol? An idol, this is review. An idol is anything that you give something that you should only give to God. So as, as a Lutheran, small catechism, probably the best place to start. What does it mean to worship God? It means that we fear, love, and trust him above all things. What does it mean for money to be an idol? It means that we fear, love, and trust money above all things. You love money. Like money is the thing that gives you happiness. If you don't have money, or if you think you might not have money, it makes you sad. What about trust? When the chips are down, what is it that you know about yourself that you can say, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. We have this nest egg. Or at least we have the house. Or something like that. We trust in it. Fear. What is it the thing that you fear to lose? Is it money? Like for, for, for me, it definitely would be. Like if we go over budget for a month, it like makes me sick to my stomach. Why is that? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not again, this is not an advertisement for wasting money. But this notion that like, oh, we're losing money is like almost gut-wrenching to me. Why? Because money is an idol. I invest it with God-like hopes and dreams. And it cannot hold the weight of that. And that's what Jesus is teaching the rich young ruler and he's what he's talking to his disciples about. This sort of greed is easy to see in our culture. Like you can, you, you can look around in the culture and we're all super good at, pen, at like pointing it out in the culture. Oh man, look how materialistic everybody is. There was this, did you guys see this week, this, there was this headline that, that Bloomberg, uh, that fronted a Bloomberg story. And I mean, I know it's Bloomberg, it's business news. But the headline, I just thought this is like classic. The headline said, um, Christmas at risk as supply chain disaster only gets worse. So everybody's sort of aware of the so-called supply chain disaster, how all the price of goods are going up and there's not a lot of things in stores. And what, the way Bloomberg phrases it is, Christmas is at risk. Okay, so Bloomberg is a business magazine. They're not making some sort of cultural statement. They're just saying that like, businesses make lots of money in December and this supply chain disaster is, is going to be a challenge to that, okay? But just the headline itself is like something totally out of like, you know, the, 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 uh, the plot line of a, a Hallmark Christmas movie, you know, like, oh, we don't have money. Like, how are we going to do Christmas? Like, you all seen that, you know, how the Grinch stole Christmas. We all know that like, this is not a reality that you can't steal Christmas, right? That's what the Grinch thought. Let's, I'm going to go take all their toys and then they won't have Christmas. And everybody's like, no, that's not true. But somehow I can point, I see the Bloomberg article. I'm like, I'm like, that's crazy. That's like nuts. Everybody knows that's not true. It's easy to see there. It's harder to see in my own life. It's harder to see the greed that I easily bleep over when I'm reading texts like this because I just don't feel like dealing with it. Why is it so hard to notice our own personal greed? Why is it so hard? Well, one of the reasons is, have you guys noticed this? We've gathered a room here of people who are all basically the same socioeconomic status. This is just the human tendency. And one of the reasons why we do that, I mean, you can say it's because we're all comfortable with the same socioeconomic status, with the same ethnicity even. We can all say that, but what it does, 
Well, so first of all, it's wrong. One of the reasons it's wrong, there's lots of reasons, but one of the reasons it's wrong is it shelters us from our particular socioeconomic group's favorite idols. So I don't ever notice greed because I don't ever feel greedy because everybody here is basically in the same socioeconomic group as me. Tim Keller says it this way. The counterfeit God of money uses powerful sociological and psychological dynamics to disguise itself. Everyone tends to live in a particular socioeconomic bracket. Once you're able to afford to live in a particular neighborhood, send your children to its schools, participate in its social life, buy its homes, you'll find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people who have the same amount of money than you, as you. You don't compare yourself to the rest of the world. You compare yourself to those in your bracket. So I don't ever have to compare myself to the wealthy because I'm not wealthy. I don't hang out with wealthy people. None of you are rich. We're all the same level. We don't have greed. We're not controlled by money. We're just basic, simple, middle-class Americans. And you see how it's disguised that we all struggle with this, but since there's nobody in here that we're like, oh, I wish that I was him, or I wish he'd lose money. That would make me happy if he lost, or any of that sort of thing. It's easy to disguise this sort of greed, but it's got to be there. It's got to be there. Jesus talks about it way too much. You guys have heard this before. Jesus talks about money way more than he talks about sex. Jesus talks about money way more than he talks about hell. And yet, I'm not the only pastor who's ever, I, I've, I've read other pastors who said this, said this too. I, I, do, I do quite a bit of counseling. And there's like a list of six or seven things that if you like ask to see me, I'm just going to kind of guess it's in these basic six or seven things. And every once in a while, there's something sort of outside of that circle, you know. But people come to me and they say things like, uh, you know, I'm struggling. There's somebody in the church who I'm not getting along with, or there's somebody in my family, or we're having marriage problems, or I had an affair. People talk about this, or, you know, people even say things like, I'm just struggling with, uh, um, you know, I lost my job, and I'm like desperate, and I'm scared, and, you know, what should I do? Can you, like, can you give me some pointers? Can you pray for me? What should I, how should I think about this? I have never one time, though, in pastoring, I've never one time had somebody come to my office and say to me, hey, Aaron, can I talk to you? Like, I'm so greedy. Like, I'm just consumed by a desire for money. And like, I just want this house so bad, and it's kind of consuming. Can you help me? Nobody's ever said that. We are all completely blind to our own greed. But it must be there, else Jesus wouldn't be talking about it so much. So one of the things I want to do by starting off here is just to encourage us to open our spiritual eyes and see this dark spot that we've ignored for a long time. Our love of money. Our love of material possessions. Our fear that we'll lose those things. Our desperation when we don't get what we think we deserve. And by the way, none of this is like money's bad and you should just like not even, I'm not saying that at all. I'm talking about idolatry, okay? So that's what I'm going to give you four things from this text this morning that Jesus says about how we should grapple in our relationship with, with money and material possessions. But the start, the baseline is this. Jesus' main point, I'm going to give you four like subpoints. Jesus' main point is this though. The kingdom of this world runs on money. The kingdom of God runs on grace. And you can't have both of those. But all of us are syncretist. Let me say this again. All of us are syncretist. All of us want to worship both of these things. We all want Jesus, but we all want to worship money too. And so like, no, I don't worship money. Like I would never trust in money. I know I trust in Jesus. He's going to get me to heaven someday. 
He says, you see what you do? I do this too. This is like this sermon's about me. Like, so Jesus has his own spot over here. Like I pray to him when my grandma's sick. Like I ask him for help in conquering sin. I trust him to take care of me and give me eternal life. But when it comes to like paying the bills or what are we going to eat or should I live in this house or not or should I take a different job or not, that's money decisions that I make. I have two separate worlds and I try to worship both. And Jesus is super insistent that that's not possible. But the reason why he tells people so often you can't serve God and mammon is because he knows that we want to serve God and mammon. Four ways to do, four ways to deal with this. Let me give you, Jesus in this text gives us a new way of thinking. He gives us a new way of acting. He gives us a new way of feeling. And he gives us a new way of relating when it comes to money and material possessions. So first, away, first off, a new way of thinking. A new way of seeing the world that actually just shocks his disciples. And it goes like this. Money does not mean that God favors us. Money does not mean that God favors us. And I know you're saying, I never would, I would never think that in a million years. Uh, yes, we do. Money does not mean that God favors us. Look down at verse 23 again. Jesus looks around after the guy leaves, the rich young ruler, and says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, some of you have heard this before. When I was a kid, I actually remember hearing somebody say, it's kind of funny because every commentary I looked up Mark in the past few weeks pointed out this apocryphal interpretation and how it's completely wrong. But I heard this when I was a kid, that the eye of the needle is the name for this door that goes into the wall of Jerusalem. And it's super small. It's just big enough, like, you know, it's like waist high and you can put goods through it, but then it shuts and it locks and it's secure. And what Jesus is saying is that camels are really big they can get through the eye of the needle, but it's really hard. It's really hard for them. And, but actually what Jesus is saying here is that take a needle, it has an eye on it, just barely big enough for a piece of thread to go through. Try to get a camel to squeeze through that eye of that needle, and you will have the same amount of sex, success that a rich person can have getting into the kingdom of God. It's impossible. It won't work. Jesus is saying, that's why the disciples are so like, go back to verse 26 again. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? They're, they're blown away by this because they have a theory. Very common in first century Judaism. There's two ways that you can think about the way that God, God and money works. First of all, God gives money to people he likes. If people have money, it's because God likes them. And there are certain parts of the Old Testament that you can latch onto where it says something similar to this, and they did and said, see, if we do what's right, if we are God worshipers, he's going to give us material goods and money. One of those is, just randomly pick this as an example. There's tons of them, though. Proverbs 13, 21. Adversity pursues sinners, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. And the Pharisees, or the Jews of the day, latched onto this and said, rich people are favored by God. It's not possible for somebody who's rich like it's, it's clear that rich people are loved by God. Well, then how could they not have the kingdom of God if he loves them? The problem with this, of course, is that it ignores lots of other wisdom literature, in the Psalms especially, where the rich people are the wicked and the righteous people are the poor. Again, at random, Psalm 73. The psalmist is very frustrated because he obeys God, loves God, serves God, but he's poor and persecuted. And the rich people that he knows are evil, selfish, 
They're thieves, they're murderers in Psalm 73. Or just take the book of Job. Here's a man who's faithful to God, loves him, worships him, and loses everything. And so you ignore, you take one part of Scripture and, and say that's, that's the reality, and take the other part of Scripture which nuances it and ignores it. That's what they did. Here's the second thing they thought. It's not just that, God's, that, that money means God's favor. Money means that people can have the time to be more religious. If you have money and wealth, it gives you the time and the space to do good deeds and to do acts of service and to do greater depths of worship. That was very common in the first century. It's very common in Christian churches today. A good example of this is um, the uh, Fiddler on the Roof, the, the musical, some of you are familiar with that. Uh, so Rev Tevye, the, 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 the lead character, sings this uh, famous song called If I Were a Rich Man, where he's, he's basically asking God, like, God, make me rich. You can do whatever you want. Why am I a poor guy? He's a dairy farmer. And in the course of the song, he says this, if I were rich, I'd have the time that I like to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the Eastern wall. And I discuss the holy books with the learned men seven hours every day. And that would be the sweetest thing of all. You see what he's saying? Like, God, if you would make me rich, I could be a better follower of you. I could be a better child of you. Now, listen, you're like, well, that's, I, you know, that's, that's crazy. Nobody would think that. Actually, everybody thinks that. How many Christians do you, how many times have you said, like, God, if I had a little bit more money, I would be more generous with it? Or, God, if I had a little bit more time, I could be more generous with my time. But you know, just from looking around at my life, at your own life, at other people's lives, that's not the way it typically works. People don't typically get more time and say, yes, now I have time to do service. People don't typically get more money and say, yes, now I have the, now I have the, 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 the economic space to be self-sacrificial with my money. Everybody, some of you make more than me, some of you make less than me. All of us are like, we're right there at the limit of like what we can survive on, right? Like none of us have extra funds to like serve the Lord with. Because the more money you get, the less you need God. It's not the case that rich people or that people with leisure have more time and more money to serve. Because the more you get of those things, the less you have a need for God. The disciples fundamentally misunderstand the nature of money and righteousness. Money does not mean God's favor. And again, I know that some of us are saying, well, I would never in a million years think that. Okay, so why is it then that when you start to lose your money, or perhaps when you've lost a job, you freak out and you're like, God, where are you at? Why is it we turn to God and say, God, you somehow abandoned us when we have financial distress? You know why? Because we, somewhere inside of us, we believe that financial distress means that God's not happy with us. And the only way we can think that is if implicitly we believe that financial success means that God is happy with us. It's an idol. And Jesus is saying you have to have a new way of thinking. You can no longer think of money in terms of blessing. I'm not saying that money isn't a blessing, but you can no longer think of money in terms of capital B blessing. It's a new way of thinking. Instead, what is the ultimate value? Verse 27, look at what Jesus is trying to adjust his disciples to think in, in, in this new way. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus doesn't like drift off into this conversation about like, okay, well, you understand, here's what I mean. It's actually that rich people tend to trust their money more, and so it makes it harder for them to trust me. He just says, yeah, you're right, it's impossible, but you know what? Stuff's impossible, but God can do the impossible. What Jesus is saying there is, forget about the power of money and think about the power of God. God can do whatever he wants. Again, to go back to idolatry, you think that you need money because you think you need to get stuff done. You think you need that new house. You think you need that new car. I'm not, and I'm not saying that those things are bad, right? But just play along with me. 
You think that you need money to give you control. And that's something that only God has. Forget the money. Let the God who does the impossible be in charge. It's a new way of thinking. Okay, secondly, a new way of acting, a new way of behaving. Exchange, here's the new way, exchanging our money for the currency of the kingdom. This is what he told the rich young ruler in in, in last week's text, right? Give up everything you have. Give away all your money and then come follow me. So I'm going to show to you in just a second. Jesus is not saying you have to give up all your money because I want you to be miserable and poor. He's saying not give up all your money, but exchange all of your money, okay? Look at verse 28. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, currently in this age, a hundredfold currently in this age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions also. He's not promising you an easy road. Also, by the way, it's hard for Christians to get Philippians chapter one, one of the last verses. Persecution for the name of Jesus is also a gift that many Christians come to love and rely upon when they get persecuted for the sake of the gospel. It becomes a treasure to them. That's why Paul is so excited. He's like, hey, like I'm in prison here in Philippians. I'm in prison. I'm getting to minister to, to, to Caesar's family. You should pray that God would like advance the gospel here. Paul prays in Philippians 3 and invites us to pray too that we would like ask for the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings in, in Philippians 3. Why is Paul so excited about suffering for Jesus? Because he knows it's actually super valuable. Like if you ain't there, you ain't there. But for those of you who know what I'm talking about and have experienced it, you know the value of it. You know the sweetness of it. Again, some things are impossible, but with God, all things are, are possible. Ask him to give you that new way of thinking. But to go back to the new way of acting here, exchanging what God is, exchanging the money and the material goods that God has given us for the goods of the kingdom. But do you see what he's saying here? He's going to make you wealthy. All right. He's going to make you rich. This, by the way, is, is based, this is based upon the cross, right? This is based upon the great exchange that Jesus does at the cross. Paul says it best in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says this, Jesus, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus gives up everything. He gives up the prerogatives of glory. He gives up his own life on the cross so that he can make us rich. So that he can be rich. So that he can be the Lord of the universe. You know what that means? Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It means he owns everything. He's the richest person in the entire world so that he can make us rich too, so that we can be empowered to give everything up, to get these riches, to get this hundredfold. This is what Jesus is offering us. But it happens because of the cross. It happens because God gave up all of his riches to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to, as Luther says, make the great exchange, to take all of our brokenness and to give us all of his riches. And what what, what Jesus is saying here to the disciples right now is don't spiritualize this. Don't be like, oh yeah, yeah, great riches, you know, like, I'll have peace in my heart, relief from guilt of sins, a home in heaven after I die. That's great, but he's saying more than that. He's saying here in this world, a hundredfold. See what he's saying? He is promising. Look, if you give up your goods for the sake of his name and for the sake of the gospel, he's going to make you fabulously wealthy. That's what the text says. That's that's, That's all I can say. Now, Somebody's like, okay, so good. Like, this is like a dollar pays back a hundred dollars, right? A hundredfold, right? Well, he's not necessarily saying that. Here's what he's offering. So one of the reasons you can think this is like, when you look at what he's offering for those who give up, uh, you know, all these things, is he's offering 
uh, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in this age and in the age to come. So you, you actually are only entitled to one biological mother. That's just a fact. But when you sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom, you are going to get mothers and brothers and sisters and lands. And I, I can't tell you what that's going to look like. I can't tell you what, what that's going to mean. What I can tell you is this, though, is that when you exchange your earthly goods, when you exchange your money for the sake of the kingdom, you are going to be wealthy in ways that you will count. This is 100%. No, it's more than that, isn't it? Isn't it are we talking about 1,000%? I don't know how this works, 100-fold. It's 100 times more than what you gave up, and you will appreciate it. I don't know what that's going to look like in your life. Maybe it will mean that when you give God $1, he gives you 100. I don't know. But it will look like something. Let me give you an example from my life. This is just an example, by the way. I, again, I, I would never promise details to anybody, but I am promising you based on what Jesus says. It will work out identically to you. Perhaps the details will be different. I unfortunately have strayed away from this gospel reality in my adult life. I've become addicted to money. I've become worried about losing money. I've begun to trust money. And I hate to do this to my dad because he's sitting right here. But that's not the way he raised me. My dad, if you knew my dad, he's, he's notoriously, famously unconcerned with becoming wealthy and rich. And again, this is like you can talk to him later. And I hate to embarrass him. And I should have asked his permission before I said this. But like... When Angela and I bought a house four or five years after we got married, it's the first time I'd actually lived in a home that me and my family had owned. If I could take you back and show you where I lived in my childhood, you would see on a church's property where my dad was the principal of the Christian school who got paid poverty wages. And that's not an exaggeration for emphasis. I mean, below poverty level. We lived on the church's property in a single wide trailer. Five of us. We had nothing, although I was completely unaware of it. My childhood was absolutely blissful. Like, I was the richest person in the world. And again, I, don't, I do not want you to, to say, oh, well, this is my own personal application. I had, because I lived on church property, like, I had the keys to the church. I had my own personal library. It was my library. I had music rooms that had musical instruments in it that belonged to me. I had a gymnasium that was my private gymnasium. My, my friends looked at my life like, I'm so glad I don't live like you. And I looked at my life and thought, holy cow, I have a private gym. It's my gym. I can go at two in the morning and play basketball if I want to. If I feel like going over to my own private library and just sitting on the floor and reading books by myself all day, I can do that. It was absolutely blissful. Again, I don't know the way it's going to work out in your life, but I'm telling you, do not escape something that blissful and glorious because you're like, I just need the money I have. I just need the property I have. Give it up. Give it away. I'll give you a good example. This is from Randy Alcorn. I didn't make this up. Imagine for a second. Imagine that you're living in the South during the Civil War, and you're a wealthy person in the South. You have tons and tons of money. You have stacks and stacks of money in your safe at home. It's all Confederate money. And you're, you're fabul fabulously rich. You can buy whatever you want. But now, you're also smart. You can read the tea leaves. You see the way the war is going. If you are a truly wise and economically responsible person, what will you do with that stash of Confederate money? Here's what you'll do. You'll keep just enough to put food on your table and clothes on your back just enough to get by, 
just enough to be comfortable, you will take the rest of it. And you will, however you can swing this, you will take the rest of it and exchange it for U.S. dollar bills. And here's the reason why. is because you want the money that's going to last and not the money that just in a few short years is going to be completely worthless. And this is what Jesus is saying. Look, Jesus' problem with material wealth is not that it's bad and it's evil. It's that it's temporary. Do you remember what he says in, remember what he says in the Sermon on the Mount? Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where none of that stuff happens. What's he saying? The problem isn't that you like money. The problem is that you like the worthless money. The problem isn't that we're like greedy. The problem is that we're greedy for things that are trans, uh, transient and that go away. The problem is that we're investing in Confederate money, people. Give the Confederate bills away and get the money that will last for. So here's another way to say it. Jesus is not asking, this is not some sort of spiritual exercise to see, can you survive in poverty to prove your love for me? Jesus is actually just being a good financial advisor. Why invest in the stock that's going to bottom out in five years when you can invest in the stock that's going to, grow, to, to, to continue gathering growth and interest for a billion years? Give it away. Keep what you need and give the rest of the way. Jump off the merry-go-round. Money is not the answer. Money is an idol. God is, God is inviting us to exchange this money for permanent currency. That's a new way of acting. Here's a new way of feeling. Because your emotions aren't going to buy into this. You're, you're going to feel horrible about giving money away. About giving anything away. Time, your energy, your gifts. You're, you're going to feel horrible about all this. So we need a new way of feeling. What Jesus says in verse 24. The disciples say, the disciples are amazed at his words. Like, how is this possible? Jesus says this in verse 24. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel, etc. He calls them children. Jesus hardly ever calls his disciples children. Why would Jesus call his disciples children? Okay, listen. If I gave you 15 seconds to think about this, if I said, think about the context. Why does he call them children? All of you sharp, moderately intelligent people could remember that two Sundays ago, was the text, just a few verses before this, was the text where Jesus takes a child and says, let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is this, is that you guys are the children. Okay, so you're worried about this. Because you look at the rich young ruler and you're like, well, if he don't got it, nobody's got it. If he's not where he's supposed to be, like who can, who can be right? And you want to be the rich young ruler, but instead you're children. What Jesus is saying is, is like, you should actually enjoy that. You think it's better to be rich, and I'm telling you, it's better to be a child. Why is it better to be a child? Well, I mean, go back to what Jesus says about children there, because children just receive him. Children take the gift of Jesus and embrace it, and they're not desperate for it. It's theirs, and they know it. This is the way children are about money. I, so I, I borrowed several weeks ago, I borrowed $30 from Reeve, my 11-year-old, and that's the kind of roller I am. So I borrowed 30 bucks from my kid. And then um, uh, this week, like, I, no, last week, I, I paid her back. I said, here's your 30 bucks. Reeve's response is like, oh, you can just keep it. I don't need it. She doesn't have any money. Like $30 is probably 50% of her, like, wealth for this entire year. But she's like, I, you just keep it. And I'm like, no, it's yours. I'm going to give it back. And she's like, well, well it's, I, I don't need it. You keep it. And so eventually I set it on the counter in the kitchen and it sits there for two days until Angela's like, will you, Reeve, will you put that away? What's Reeve saying? 
Here's a, Reeve is a child. Does, is Reeve desperate for $30? Dad, give me that back. What kind of interest are you going to? You know why Reeve isn't desperate for $30? Do you know why Reeve, no offense, baby, you know why Reeve doesn't really have any sense of like how much $30 is? Because she doesn't need to. She gets all the food she wants. She gets clothes when she needs it. We buy her books. She's got a big room full of Legos. She never once thinks, I better get that 30 bucks or I'm going to lose it forever. We give her everything that she needs. We give her everything that she wants, basically. That's what Jesus is telling them. Hey, just be, you don't need to be rich. Just be a child. Children are the richest people in the world because they have everything without any sort of sense that I need more because they know they've got everything they need. Look, that's what Jesus wants you to do. Be a child. You can give away money. You don't have to grasp onto that. Give it to somebody else. Give it to mission. Give it to somebody who needs it. Give it to the Lord's work. You know why? As soon as you give that 30 bucks away, you're going to get another 30 bucks. There's another story. I hate to, like, I, well, I should have asked Harry about this too. This is a long time ago. And thanks, Bubs. This is a long time ago, and this does not reflect on his current state of responsibility. But there were several winters ago when Angela was like, okay, I'm going to the store. This is going to be the fourth winter coat that I buy him this year. There was one day later on, much to our relief, when he came back home after having visited the lost and found with three winter coats in his arms. Because you buy him a winter, he doesn't do this anymore. You buy him a winter coat and he loses it. And so you buy him another one and he loses it. Now, I, this, again, this is not an advocacy for like not caring for stuff people give you. But what I am saying is this, Harry never one time thought, oh my gosh, I lost my winter coat. I bet I freeze to death this winter. He knew that if he comes and says, I, don't, I lost my winter coat, that whatever else we said to him in our brokenness and fallenness, that we were going to give him another winter coat. Live life that way. Give it away. Your heavenly father will not let you go without a winter coat. You can give yours away. Your heavenly father will not let you go without the time that you need. Give your time away. Your heavenly father will not say, oh, you gave that $30 to missions or to the Lord's work or to mercy ministries or to the church. Too bad. You should be more responsible. You're an American. You took microeconomics in college. You got to hold on to that stuff. He will not do that. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He sent his own son to die on the cross and rise from the dead to make you the richest person in the entire world. You can give away anything and it's going to come back to you a hundredfold. Guaranteed. I'm not saying it's going to come back as money. But if it doesn't come back as money, it will come back as something that you're glad you have it instead of money. Fourth thing, and then we'll be done. A new way of feeling like a child, a new way of relating, valuing others the way that God values them. When you start to see money this way, when you start to see your other believers, your, your brothers and sisters as the infinitely wealthy co-heirs of the universe, you will start to not treat people differently based on their money. And you say, well, I would never do that. Look around, people. This is a clearly middle-class white congregation. Somebody is trying to, we've all agreed somehow, unspokenly, tacitly, that we're going to hang out with people that look just like us and have the same amount of money as us. Now, we can fix that later. We can pray about that later. But the fact is, is that we all think of money this way. We're all jealous of people who have more money than us, and we all look down on people who have less money than us. Even if we're nice to them, we do it from a position of superiority. And the gospel is saying, do not relate to people that way anymore because in, underneath the terms of the gospel, here's how economics works. Verse, 20, verse 31, last verse in the text. Jesus follows up with this final dig of like, this is how I want you to think and relate. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. What he's saying is this, look around. 
You can't tell based upon people's houses, based upon people's bank accounts, based upon the clothes they wore. You don't know where they're at. There are people amongst us who are dirt poor who will be fabulously wealthy in the age to come, so wealthy that we'll want to get their autograph. There are people amongst us who are so proud of their money who will find themselves someday bereft of any kind of hope, bereft of any kind of security, bereft of any kind of power, all the things that they think that money can come to them because the first will be last and the last will become first. And that's what Jesus is saying. Two practical things and then I'm going to be done. The church has to stop overvaluing the wealthy. Like you hold this church accountable. Typically in churches, the people who end up with the power in the churches are the business people, the people with the financial wisdom, because that's the way it works in the culture. The people with the money get the power. It can't be that way in the Christian church. And the church, the church needs to value everybody, but they need to stop overvaluing the wealthy and they need to stop undervaluing the needy. People who come into church, we go at them with the position of superiority. Oh, I'll help them out. And actually, when you help out the poor, you're actually meeting with Jesus. Which John 26, uh, Matthew 26 says, right? As often as you've done it to the least of me, visit them in prison, fed them, clothed them, given them something to drink, you're doing it to Jesus. You're not doing the poor any favors when you serve them. You're meeting Jesus. The poor are doing us a favor, whoever that is. You know, we're, we're, there's all, always people more poor than us and more rich than us. We're meeting Jesus. We have to start seeing people in gospel-centric ways. Christ died from you and rose from the dead from you to make you the richest person in the world. Give it away. There's an infinite well of wealth and money and time and talent and energy that God is just ready to give to you once you start giving it away. Do it in Jesus' name. Stand with me and let's pray and we'll have communion. Let's pray. Father, forgive me of greed. I just preach that sermon and like thinking the whole time about how I'm so bad at this and how I'm so needy for things that I shouldn't be needy for. I'm so trusting in things I shouldn't be trusting in. Forgive me for all the times when like I'm irritable with my family because I'm concerned about money or I make stupid decisions that hurt Angela and my kids and my friends and my church because I just think if I could just get a little bit more money or a little bit more material goods, I'll be happier. Like, forgive me for those, God. Wash me clean of that idolatry. Help me to see that you are the infinite value, that you've promised me in your son, Jesus Christ, infinite wealth, a hundredfold. God, help me, to be, help me to be a child. Help me to be freely willing to give you everything I've got, to give away everything I got because I know that my Father always supplies my needs. Lord, in your mercy. Father, be with all of our sister churches in the area. Be with uh, our sister LCMS churches. And every Sunday we pray for them. And Father, uh, lots of heartache in LCMS churches uh, today and lots of hopelessness and lots of joy too and, and lots of faith and trust in you. And as your word is preached, as a lot of us are reading this text this morning, Father, like show us your glory, show us your riches. Turn all of our churches to your heart. The, the infinitely profligate heart of the Father, which just gives and gives and gives to us. Father, be with all of our sister churches in this area. May, may we work together to see your gospel get proclaimed and your kingdom grow. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because you, the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, has told us to come in here and ask for this. Told us to come in here and ask for all these good gifts that we can give away. And so we're doing it, Father. Make this church rich. Make us wealthy so that we can be poor, so that we can be wealthy in the hundredfold sense. Help us to give away what you've given to us, the money that we have sitting in here right now, 
the time that we have sitting in here right now, the energy and the talents that people have that they're holding on to, grasping because they don't want to give them away right now. Father, work in our hearts to give those away. We know that, we know that you can do that because you're our Father, because you've invited us in here as your, as, as the, your daughters and your sons, connected by baptism and faith to your son Jesus. And so we have the confidence to ask for these things, knowing that you give them to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together now in Jesus' name, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Go in peace.